Welcome to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Starring Phil Horander and Phil Schaff. Well, here we are, Phil, episode two. I think I'm probably just as excited as our listeners are to hear what you have planned for us. Yeah. Uh, first of all, we just want to thank the listeners for tuning in. We got some really great feedback. Uh, we really do appreciate you guys reaching out, uh, messaging us, and uh, it's very humbling. So we thank you uh, an awful lot. Now, for episode two, um, you've probably noticed that the title of episode two is Out of One Many, and it's a derivative of the old saying, the E Pluribus Unum saying, uh, which means out of many one. It was our nation's motto up to about 1956 when In God We Trust served as a replacement and in some cases an alternative to E Pluribus Unum. E Pluribus Unum was adopted when the Second Confederation Congress created the Great Seal of the United States in 1782. But this podcast really isn't about how we as individuals come together as one, and that's ultimately what we want to do. But this episode is about how one person not just influenced many, but had a butterfly effect upon millions and millions of people. So we're coming up on the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower. And of course, as you know, one of our goals as this podcast progresses is to talk about the least known stories of some of these well-known events. Well, the Mayflower is one of those well-known events, but what about it is least known? And I think the best way to get into it is just to ask you a question. What does the Mayflower, a printing press, a rope, the Mormon church, and FDR have in common. Stay tuned after this break to find out. You're listening to the Missing Chapter Podcast, where you will hear some of the least known, obscure, and entertaining stories the history textbooks left out. Don't forget to follow us on all major podcast distributors. So, Phil, you left us kind of hanging there. I, um, I I have a lot of questions. And one of the things you mentioned in the in the first podcast is that you and I really have not shared a lot of information uh, with regards to each other's episodes. So the equation of how the Mayflower and, and how FDR are going to tie in together, I'm, I'm intrigued. Uh, that's what we're supposed to do here. That That's great. And uh, I, I think we have to address something else here, too, because there's an elephant in the room. Yeah, the aroma in the room. The aroma in the room is just some sweet-smelling coffee. Uh, it kind of smells like maybe a little peanut butter cup. Yeah, yeah, there's a candy element to it. It's, yeah, there really it's is. It's fantastic, and it's it's a little bit um, distracting. Yep, But uh, What did you brew this morning? Uh, Utica Roasting. Shout-out to Utica Roasting Company in uh, Genesee Street in Utica, New York. We're uh, roasting your... Fine blend of peanut butter cup coffee this morning. It's incredible. You guys got to go check it out. Definitely did not disappoint. So on that uh, sentiment, pour yourself a cup of coffee and saddle up because this is going to be a good one. Yep. All right. So what we know about the Mayflower, things we've been taught in school, um, we know it's a smaller ship. We know, obviously, it traveled across the incredibly violent Atlantic Ocean. Uh, It's built for cargo. It's not really built as a, as a luxury liner. It's used basically as a merchant ship. It's going to ship wine. It's going to ship um, any sort of 
uh, not really even luxury items. It's going to ship a ton of food, but it's to, to have it used as a, as a transport for people, especially during our, you know, 2020 mind is really mind boggling because it's, it's hundred percent not supposed to be for people. Uh, it's about hundred feet long, about 25 feet wide and 40 feet tall. And it, and it max speed is about two to three miles an hour. Wow. So you can imagine going across the Atlantic Ocean at two to three miles an hour. Anyone who's been on a cruise liner, to put that in perspective, you know, when you think to yourself, well, how how long is 100 feet? Today's luxury liner is about 1,100 feet long. So when you compare the luxury liner to today with 400 years ago, a 100-foot wooden boat, I mean, the effects of, of the, the waves itself is going to have an enormous impact on on the human psyche, especially. Well, one of the things that immediately stood out as you were running through those statistics is is the size of the ship. Because I think, you know, in my mind, I always made it a lot bigger, a lot larger than it actually is. And I can't remember offhand uh, how many people are actually making the trip, but that's certainly, you're not going to have a lot of free space and extra room. Exactly. So to speak. And that's something to mention too, because part of this episode is, is really revolving around obviously the Mayflower, but how the Mayflower is being used and who's on the ship and why they would choose some of the items that they would put on the Mayflower blows my mind because you got to understand that you're, you're putting enough food in there to basically last you over a month. Granted, what we do know about this is that it, it took them 66 days. The original goal was to get there in 30. They've obviously hit some really rough waters. Um, but there's about 30 crew members, 102 passengers, and there's only a couple decks. And the the above deck, you really don't want to spend too much time on because there's there's a risk of falling overboard, which obviously no one wants to do that, especially during this time period where not a lot of people know how to swim. So once again, 100 feet long compared to 1,100 feet. Um, luxury liners are 215 feet wide, give or take, and 200 feet tall with a max speed of about 25 miles an hour. So, I mean... A uh, typical luxury liner that anyone who's ever been on a cruise dwarfs this Mayflower. It would almost be compared to, I mean, uh, a small uh, boat you would see on on like the Mohawk River. So to think that you would travel across the Atlantic Ocean on something that would um, not typically be seen as a, an enormous boat in the Mohawk River in 2020 standard is pretty incredible. Almost a quarantine for that time period. You 100%. About, it you really know, was. Over two months on one ship with that many people. Yep. Like you said, it would definitely take a mental toll as well as a physical toll. And I think what what else we know, and we can envision this in the 1600s, you're not having luxury liner bathrooms. Mm-hmm. You're not having suites like you would see in these luxury liners today. Um, you are below deck for the majority of your time. You're expecting to be there for about a month. Um, but like we've said earlier, it, it almost took it took more than double the amount of time that, that they expected to. And I think what's what's also interesting to note is, and then we'll talk about this later in the episode, but they actually had already set sail about a month prior. Oh, wow. A month prior to them setting sail, and, and the, the story we know, they, they make it to the New World and set up colony there. Uh, they had already set out with another boat, um, which we'll reference in a couple minutes. But what we don't really know too much, and I think you you asked this question earlier, and I had to do some more research on it, was where the name the Mayflower, where, how did that come about? What do we really know the origin of its name? And quite honestly, we, we know that there was a, a hawthorn flower, uh, that, that there was very popular flower in England. So we think the ship had a Mayflower carved on its stern, and that's probably why it was 
It was seemed colorful because a lot of ships in that time period were colorful to be seen at distance, almost like a safety feature built into 1620 boat standards. Um, what we might not have heard about, though, is what we referenced, the fact that it it actually traveled with another boat. So prior to uh, the expedition, they actually set out with a sister ship called the Speedwell. The Speedwell. The Speedwell. So the Speedwell, I mean, if you can think, is traveling at two to three miles an hour. I might not have appropriately named the Speedwell. Yeah. Because it doesn't do very to my well mind first, yeah, yeah. Uh, for speed. No, that's not going to happen in my terms. But the speed well actually leaked so badly they had to turn around. So they're, they're about a month out um, and then had to turn around. So actually the first track took about two weeks there, two weeks back. Wow. So the people on the Mayflower that have already set sail, they had to turn back because the speed well was leaking so badly. Um, so they set sail in August because they had to turn around and go back. They eventually left again in September. So for those of uh, the, the brave souls that decided to take the Mayflower trip, now are already uh, expecting to be there in a month. They've already had a month on the boat, had to turn around and start again. And this certainly sets their entire timeline back too. Completely. The, the month they would have been on sea would have been much warmer. The month they would have been arriving in the new world would have been much warmer. And now because of this, they're on the water at the beginning of fall. It's going to be cold. Right. And you got to, you got to think to yourself too. I mean, think of the Mayflower story and the whole idea around Thanksgiving. You're around harvest. Uh, Thanksgiving might not have ever technically happened if they didn't come in during harvest time. Interesting. So another part of this story that not too many people know about, and this is where we're getting into the meat of the story. Out of all the things to bring on board, you got to think you're bringing as much food as you can fit on board, as well as having about 130 or so passengers. How do you fit all this stuff on there? Well, out of nowhere, before they set sail, they decided to take on one item. I can't even imagine because you said space is already limited. Space is incredibly limited. The one item they chose to bring on for whatever reason, and no matter how much research we've tried to find out, we can't find the motivation behind this, a printing press. A printing press. A printing press. One can speculate. You know, maybe they wanted to record some of their experiences on the ship. Okay. Maybe they wanted to record some of the experiences they had once they reached the Western Hemisphere in the Americas and the interaction with some of the natives. Um, but we can only guess. But that's going to play a crucial role in the survival of the people in the Mayflower. And here's where we we get to the, uh, the center, central part of the story. So about halfway through the, the trek they reach some incredibly rough waters. They're being tossed back and forth so violently that uh, the ship actually twists. Now, if anyone knows anything about uh, cars, they'll know that if you're the frame of the car and you have a really powerful motor, the motor will have so much torque that it will twist the car. So if you don't have a good frame, it'll twist the car essentially in half. That's why you see a lot of these, these drag cars um, kind of over-engineered over in order to prepare for that amount of torque. And the ocean has that same effect on a ship. So as this boat is traveling, this tiny 100-foot-long boat is traveling through the Atlantic Ocean, it's getting tossed left and right, it actually twists the central beam almost in half. Wow. So about halfway through the trek, they actually thought that they would be split in half and they would have gone down. And every person, 130 of them, give or take, would have perished in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. 
Well, I'm thinking two things right off the bat. Number one, just how violent the Atlantic is. I mean, right. if you vacationed anywhere on, on the East Coast or the Northeast, you know how bad it can be definitely during storms, um, how rough the waters can be. And number two, I'm not sure how well a wooden ship would hold up. I mean, maybe there's some flexibility there. Maybe there's some give but at the same time, it's going to reach a breaking point, right, Phil? Yeah, it's, it's going to reach a breaking point to the point where um, you're not going to be able to salvage it. There, there might be they, – they bring some supplies on board, but not to repair an essential beam. So the central beam is like the, the, the spine, like the frame of the car that I mentioned. It's like the central spine of the ship. So if that beam breaks, there's no support, there's no backup, and they don't really have the hardware or means to, to – pick this just massive beam up so what do you think they end up using well i i have to imagine there's a reason you told us about the printing press because it does seem pretty random it does and that's exactly what they use so the printing press uh back in this this time period is an incredibly massive machine um give or take depending on how they they built their version of the printing press about six feet tall about four feet wide give or take so this is a massive uh, machine that they would want to use. And there are some historians that actually believe that that the printing press they chose was actually broken. It wasn't even workable. So why they still chose to put it on is a great question. But I'm so glad they did. Divine intervention. Divine intervention. We got some God's providence here mm -hmm. because uh, what they end up doing is they realize while they're being tossed back and forth and they're at the mercy of the waves, they really are at the point where they have no control over the ship, especially the central spine being broken. So they take they have the brilliant idea to take this broken down printing press. They turn it on its end okay. and use the corkscrew as a jack. They jack up the central beam to the point where now it's perpendicular with the ship where it needs to be. Um, and they, they end up tying it and, and fixing it while the, the printing press is holding up the central beam. That's amazing. And it saves everybody on board. It's amazing that they had it on there, and it's amazing that it functioned as well as, as it did. Its design really it served an amazing purpose. Completely. And it was designed to print, but this this way was actually used to uh, as a jack to, to save everybody on board and eventually save millions of people later on because we can obviously foresee that if those 130 people didn't make it, you can only imagine after 400 years of generations um, what that would mean for, for history standard. That's the butterfly effect in itself. However, that's not the main story. It's an amazing story, but it's not the main it's story. It's not the main story. Because as, as we start getting into the central part of the story, we've obviously known at this point that the Atlantic Ocean was so violent that it, it almost takes out the entire ship. Right. After that incident, there's a gentleman by the name of John Howland who was on board the ship. Some historians actually argue that he probably should not have even been on the ship. He was an indentured servant. We believe he was um, in his 20s, in his early 20s. And he was an indentured servant for one of the governors uh, that was on the ship. So he's really pretty brave to and courageous to to say, hey, I'll take part of this, this trek, obviously for obvious reasons why we'd want to travel and you know take that risk going across the Atlantic Ocean, where you know that some ships have obviously haven't even made it. You got the speedwell that made it a, a few weeks and then had to turn around. So, you know, why John Holland decided to get on the ship is probably to help out the governor at that point. But um, 
you know, he does make the trek and he's, he's brave enough to, to say, all right, I'm coming with you. So John Howland, after experiencing the violent Atlantic Ocean, says, I've had enough. He's below deck where essentially everyone is supposed to be, uh, you're, especially during violent storms, you're not supposed to go above deck for the risk of falling over. I guess you could venture out what John Howland decides to do. I'm guessing make a rather um, a decision that, that he was probably second guessing at some point. Yeah, it's a poor judgment call. Poor judgment call. Poor judgment call. Uh, he's going to decide to um, take his risks uh, upstairs. So you can imagine with no real bathrooms below deck, with no real windows below deck, not enough room because it's being crowded over by food, by, of course, a printing press. You're shoulder to shoulder and you're being tossed back and forth so violently that the central spine is going to break. Well, you can imagine what that has, what effect that has not only on your body, but your your psyche. So he's had enough. He, he goes to the top. Um, kind of being uh, scolded by the, the crew, they remind him that no one is supposed to be above deck. He says, I got to be up here. I'm getting so seasick. I, I just had to get some fresh air. And the inevitable happens. Oh, boy. Man overboard. So he loses his footing. He falls overboard. And now uh, the crew is screaming, man overboard. Now, at this point, um, you are basically hanging on for dear life if you are a crew member. Because the crew member is no longer concerned about steering the ship. You're being, uh, you're basically at the mercy of the ocean. And now you have a man overboard. So what do you do? Well, they have... They have ropes uh, in which they would hang over the edge just in case this happened. But in 1620 standards, you don't have a typical person off the street being able to swim. So John Holland cannot swim, and the majority of the crew members can't swim. Thankfully, out of nowhere, there's a thing called a topsail halyard. Anyone that knows anything about sailing will know that the, the sails have all sorts of ropes, all sor sorts of mechanisms to battle the wind and make sure you're getting enough wind to push uh, the ship two to three miles an hour, which in that standards is, is very typical for our standards, obviously is very slow. The topsail hill yard is actually a rope that rises and lowers, that raises and lowers the, um, the top sail. That's why they call it the topsail hill yard. So it should have been wound down and it should have been attached to uh, a portion of the ship. For whatever reason, thank God it wasn't. The topsail rope is actually dangling not only off the side of the ship and off the back of the ship, but at the very place where John Holland falls overboard. So you can imagine not being able to swim, violent Atlantic Ocean, you're already seasick from you know weeks and weeks on end of being tossed back and forth. And here he is, he's overboard struggling to survive. So he's bobbing up and down. He's uh, pushing his hands down to try to stay above water. And uh, there's no life raft, obviously. There's no uh, boats that they could throw out and any uh, raft that they can pick them up on. They don't have that technology yet. They don't have the ability yet. And, of course, the crew members can't swim. So they're not going to jump overboard because that's essentially a death mission. And the water had to be pretty cold. I'd the water, water's got to that, be That's not going to help either. Essentially. So what ends up happening is he's bobbing up and down. He finally catches a breath, um, is just taking in so much water that his lungs are filling up. But as he comes up, one of the moments he, he comes up, he is able to not only see the rope, but the rope is actually within arm's reach. And as you can imagine, he grabs the rope, 
he wraps them around himself and he's hanging on for dear life in the most literal sense. So the crew grab the rope. They start yanking with all his might and it's actually pretty effective. He's being pulled up onto the ship. Um, it, remember, it's so violent that he actually slams up against the ship. And at the moment he slams up against the ship, they take a boat hook and hook his leather vest and actually grab him. They pull him up onto the ship. Um, at the mercy of the seas, they're being still tossed back and forth. Uh, water's coming on the deck. Um, and you can get a visual of, of what effect he's having. Obviously, the emotional impact, but now the physical impact. He has taken on so much water, they don't think he's going to survive. He coughs up a, a ton of water. Um, he's eventually going to be taken care of by one of the people on, on board by the name of Elizabeth Tilly. Elizabeth Tilly and John Holland, we think, become, become partners, become in love with each other because of this uh, nurturing aspect of her trying to nurture him back to health because he is definitely going to need it because they still have a, a good portion of the trip left. Uh, and they need someone to take care of him. And of course, I think it's it's pretty probable to see that Elizabeth Tilly is that person who nurses him back to health. So she was traveling alone, just like he was? Whether she not, she was traveling do alone, I don't know. Okay. And we would have to do some more research on that. But she was on board and maybe took a liking to him while she was nursing him back to health. We, we don't really know. But they do end up falling in love. So as the story goes, they finally reach the New World they set up colony, and Elizabeth Tilly and John Holland uh, eventually get married, and they have children. Ten children. Is that the end of the story, Phil? That is not no, the okay. end of the story. Somehow I knew that. I, You're building you up for something. I know. As I crazy know. and as amazing as that story is, I feel like you're building up to something even bigger. Yeah, there's something else coming. See, the butterfly effect portion of this is the fact that they had almost 90 grandchildren. So if you can see that family tree grow and grow and grow after 400 years, that's probably a pretty big reach in American history. It would have to be. So to backtrack, we have an indentured servant that really questionably why he really should be on that ship. That's kind of up in the air. We have the printing press that really should never have been on the trip. And thank God it was because it, it eventually saved the lives of all the people on board, as well as the butterfly effect of the millions that follow. We have the violent Atlantic Ocean, which tried to take out uh, the central beam of the ship. We have the rope that really shouldn't have been hanging overboard that uh, was the, uh, quote, life raft for John Holland as he makes his way back up. And then we have Elizabeth Tilly, which, you know, why she was on board, which, I mean, you could, you could speculate again, but all of those factors put together you have 10 children as well as almost 90 grandchildren. Now, here comes the, the amazing part of the story. And this was a story I thought I knew. Incredible. And everything yes. that you just told me is, is completely brand new. Incredibly, we, we think we know about something. And that's why history is so uh, engaging is because once you really start researching some of these, these stories, you really find out that as much as I thought I knew about the story, the humbling experience is maybe I don't know enough. And here's the crazy part. Because of all that happening, we now have some descendants of John Holland that has just an enormous impact uh, in American history to the point where if John Holland didn't survive, the following people would have not had an impact 
on, on history as it stands today. World history, not I, just American. I can't wait to hear. John Holland's descendants include Nathaniel Gorham, who is Continental Congress president, signer of the Constitution. Uh, a woman by the name of, you might have heard her, Sarah Palin. Her name rings a bell. Of course. Sure. Alaska governor. Joseph Smith. Oh, okay. Now we're found, starting. There we go. Founder of the Mormon Church. Uh, you have actors like the Baldwin brothers, believe it or not, are, are descendants of John Holland. You have Christopher Lloyd, another actor, uh, William Macy. But you also have three American presidents. Wow. George H.W. and George W. Bush, as well as FDR. It just boggles the mind. It does. And here's the, the last part is John Holland's brother is inspired by John. They eventually uh, make contact with each other. Obviously, you can imagine that that'd be a long time between, um, you know, sending a letter and sending notification over between the hemispheres in that time period. But John's brother actually gets notified that um, John has made it. John's brother is inspired and says, you know what, if he can make it and he's doing well, uh, I'm going to make the, I'm going to take the risk too. And I'm going to make the trip. So he eventually goes over and he has descendants. His descendants include Richard Nixon. So now we're up to four presidents. Gerald Ford. Five presidents. Wow. And maybe you've heard of this uh, European superstar, Winston Churchill. Sure. So without this John Howland making the trek, inspiring his brother to make the trek as well, because let's face it, if he didn't make it, there's no way his brother would have taken the risk and, and gone because he said, well... If my brother can't make it, I'm, I'm certainly not going to take right, that trip. Probably here. the exact opposite. Exactly. So we have actually five total presidents, as well as one of the most influential uh, European leaders for that time is Winston Churchill. And when we come back from break, we'll talk about how all those people really had an, uh, an effect on world history. Sounds good, Phil. Educators. The most dangerous place you can find yourself as teachers is in the comfort zone. Team History gives you the tools, know-how, and confidence to move forward regardless of where you are in your career. The education model has changed drastically in the 21st century, but have you adapted with it? Despite their concentration in social studies, Team History offers consulting in all subjects in all areas of education. Their mentoring is both professional and personal. They specialize in co-teaching models, making technology a focus in the classroom, and streamlining curriculum and standard-focused alignment. Have the confidence to take the next step in teaching. Team History can help. Want to know more? Go to teachingrevolution.weebly.com. That's teachingrevolution.weebly.com. All right, Phil. So I think the direction that I want to take this uh, as we close um, is not just the global impact, not just the butterfly effect of John Holland and his story, but I don't think you have a, a John Holland story, obviously, in, in all of his descendants without um, Elizabeth Tilly. We can't overlook the fact that she was just as vital in this. And, you know, historians are speculating that they might have fallen in love, obviously, because of the, uh, you know, nursing him back to health, possibly. But there's a few things that we, we really have to touch upon with, when it comes to Elizabeth Tilly. Um, because you won't have any of this story without her. Right. And I have to tell you, I really enjoyed hearing this episode. And there were so many things I took away from it. First off, names I had never heard of in history. 
uh, an Elizabeth Tilly I'd never heard of. And now she was such an integral part of that of that story. And, and now we, we know her, her background and the impact that she would have on American history. I love the fact that we're coming up on a 400th anniversary. We're a month and a half removed from Thanksgiving. It's nice that, that we have this episode now to, to know more about. For me, it's really two things that stand out, Phil. Number one, what people are, are able to endure in history. Right. The experiences, and we've touched on this before throughout history, what generations have been able to endure and go through in order for whether it be to start a new life, to avoid religious persecution. It's amazing. And this is another example. And also just the idea, the impact that one single person could have, not just on the time period that they're living in, but so many future generations and well into the future of history. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I don't think Elizabeth Tilly and John uh, Holland are, are going on the, the Mayflower anticipating having a butterfly effect of millions of people. I mean, they're, their goal is not to say, hey, we want to make sure and populate the, the earth with with uh, up to 10 million descendants. I mean, I don't think anyone goes into uh, a trip like that or, or life in itself thinking that they want to populate millions. But it's um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you you take just the the just the the courage to go on the boat and pursue and endure some of these um, horrible obstacles uh, it's an absolutely incredible story. And Elizabeth Tilly really fits the bill. I mean, something we haven't mentioned is the fact that she's the youngest of five children to accompany her parents on the Mayflower. She was only 13 years old. So at 13 years old, I mean, why you would choose the youngest of the five to come? I mean, there's a lot of reasons, I guess. But I mean, I would say that if I'm a parent, I'm not taking my youngest, especially if she's only 13 years old on a 66-day trek, whether they anticipated it to be that long or not. Right. We forget just how young 13 is. Oh, for sure. Um, so, and, and her parents, this is another thing too. At 13, she has to endure not just the, the hardship of the, of the trip, but once they're there, I mean, we know about that first winter, how harsh it was. And unfortunately, her parents, her aunt and her uncle all perished in that first winter. So in that first winter, she's actually an orphan after one winter of, of being on, on the New World's land. In a foreign land and... And all of these hardships ahead of her, too. Right, exactly. Uh, and something I, I, I do want to mention, because I think it's an integral part of the story as well, is the fact that because she's now an orphan, we got to go back and talk about John Holland's, uh, the governor that I mentioned, that, that John Holland was was a part of, that he was an apprentice under, uh, an indentured servant under, and that's, that's John Carver. So John Carver, um, just a little background on him as well, is the fact that, uh, yes, he is the governor that Holland served under, but he's actually one of the writers of the Mayflower Compact. Uh, he's its first signer and uh, first governor of the Plymouth Colony. So something that I, I want to make sure and, and put together and piece together as we close is that not only is he just a governor, not only does he have such a historic impact, but the fact is he he obviously has, has come to like uh, John Howland. He brings him on, but then there must be some sort of just I don't know, uh, innate, innate connection between Elizabeth Tilly and John Holland to the point where he actually adopts Elizabeth Tilly. So the connection there now is kind of like the, the, this big triangle uh, family. So they're taking the liking to each other, Elizabeth and, and John Holland. And now, you know, her, her family passes away. And now you have a, a, a John Carver, who's such an integral part of history. And he's now really uh, befriending and, and adopting Elizabeth Tilly. 
So as we as we move on out here, the the story between Elizabeth Tilly and John Holland goes as such, where you know they they get married um, pretty much right away. It's it's a couple years into um, them being in the New World uh, and in the colonies. Um, she's about sixteen when they get married. Okay. All right. So it's about two or three years after after they they make land. Um, and he's about thirty. So the the age difference is quite noticeable. Um, I mean, obviously they, they started interacting when she was only 13. So, I mean, (laughs) formulate your own opinions on that one, but, um, she eventually is going to outlive him by 14 years. They're both around 80 years old, uh, when they pass, which actually puts John Holland as one of the, um, that he actually outlived most of the Mayflower passengers, which is pretty amazing. And that's amazing too. When you consider all that they went through at this point in history to live into your eighties, I think is remarkable. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what's an interesting story on top of all this is that there was such a connection between John Carver and Elizabeth Tilly that there was rumors up to about the 1800s that he was actually uh, her father until a journal came out that was discovered. And they said, no, he, uh, he adopted her after her parents uh, had passed that first, that first winter. So you can obviously see there's a direct connection between Carver and Tilly. And speaking of Carver, I just, I, I really want to stress because there's so many lessons we can learn from the story. Um, I think one of the lessons is, you know, a John Holland on, on paper in a typical textbook would certainly overshadow an Elizabeth Tilly or uh, a John Holland because he's the governor. He's the writer of the Mayflower Compact. He's its first signer. Um, he's the governor of the Plymouth Colony. However, when you start to unpack all of this evidence and unpack all these really unknown stories, you look at someone like a John Holland and it's so inspiring because he's actually the guy that would, would we would look at and be more inspiring than a John Carver because of all that he overcame. So I think that actually John Carver's story is actually overshadowed by his own indentured servant, which the lesson in that, of course, is just the worth of one life. Right. Right. And hence the title to your, exactly. to your episode. Yeah. So it, you know, for those of you that are listening, it, it, we really want to stress that the worth of your life in general is such where it doesn't matter if you're the governor or if you're the indentured servant, you can have just an absolutely incredible impact on the world. And I think that's something that we should really, uh, as historians, but just as citizens of the world, we should really look at history and, and take away some of those, those lifelong lessons because they've had just such a global impact uh, throughout history. Right. That's a great point. I mean, we're all part of history just by living through the time periods that we do. Absolutely. We're leaving the footprint. Yeah. So now um, as we move on from this episode, I, I do want to segue into a little preview for episode three, which uh, I think is going to be is going to be a quite good one. I, well, you know, episode three is going to be unique in that we've you know, it's we've had an opportunity now individually to, to tell stories. And this is one that we're going to do jointly. It's one that as teachers, I think kids really enjoy hearing when they come into our class. And it's one that we've gotten to the point where we look forward to every year teaching this topic. The turning point of the 20th century and how coincidental, in in fact, it was. How one wrong turn essentially sent a shockwave of events that would not just result in two people's deaths, but eventually 10 million people. And the rise of what most people consider to be the greatest evil of the 20th century, how that really started with one mistake that a driver made 
and the ripple effect that that would have not only on Europe, but on the globe in ways that we had never really experienced before in history. So I think it's, it's going to be an episode that you and I enjoy, enjoy putting together jointly. I think it's one that listeners should definitely look forward to hearing about. And even if you think you know some background to this event, I think you'll be surprised uh, to what you don't know. Absolutely. And it, there's just a such a connection here, too, uh, with the butterfly effect of history with one person, one wrong turn, uh, one person getting on the Mayflower when they maybe shouldn't have, uh, you know, the, the impact of one person. And ironically, and <clears throat> ironically enough, having 10 million descendants of the Mayflower crew. Uh, and now we're talking, you know, deaths of 10 million people on the next episode. So there's there's such a connection between this episode and the next. And I think you guys will certainly enjoy it. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, I'm Phil Horander. And I'm Phil Schaff. Another chapter has been added to the history textbooks. <laughs>